So last week we explored St. Paul's magnificent commentary on Sarah and Hagar, found at the end of Galatians chapter 4. We're in our Galatians theory. Galatians theory? I don't even know what that word is. Galatians series. Paul uses the story as an allegory to further his argument for grace over appeasement. It's masterful rhetoric that we looked at last week. And it is especially helpful because he pushes into the very core tension between the two, between appeasement appeasement and grace. And that is, what exactly is faith? What exactly is faith? We saw that last week um, as we looked at that study. For while we all know, we will all claim to know, right? We, We as Christians claim to know that we are saved by grace through faith. It is easy because of our predilection for appeasement to reverse that to being saved by faith through grace. Even when we don't know we've done it. It's just deep inside the way we do Christianity. So instead of faith being our response to grace, faith being an opening of our hearts to God's love and a living into God's love, what we do is we turn faith into another way of appeasing God. Having the correct faith or enough faith so God will love us. Okay? That's the tension Paul is getting at. That's why it's so important that we all spend our time in Scripture understanding this incredible narrative that God is a God of grace. Because when we make it about having the correct faith or enough faith that God saves us, that is making belief the mechanism, and that's appeasement. That's appeasement. We think that if we believe properly, then God saves us. No. God saves us, and we can accept it or not. But accepting something God does, or making God do something, because of our correct acceptance, are two very different things. And I know this is hard. I mentioned it last week. This is like the quantum physics of Christianity especially for those of us who have been born and raised in the time that we have all been born and raised. This has been a muddied and a very muddied line. So that's why Paul wrote Galatians. It was muddied back then and he knew it would remain muddy. It's the human condition to appease God because appeasing God ultimately is about us, right? We love to worship ourselves. So this is what Paul so adeptly speaks to in that brilliant part of Galatians. And that's what I want to continue to explore today by looking at this very well-known and fascinating story in the life of Jesus when he rose, when he raised Lazarus from the dead. I'm having a lot of trouble talking today, aren't I? Wow. And it's Lent. I was in bed by 9.30 last night. Maybe that's the problem. For I believe that despite what we may think this story means or what we even want this story to mean, it may actually be here instead to help us understand faith as receiving God's love and not something we use to make him love us. I think we will find that beneath all the drama of this incredible story, there is a very purposeful teaching by Christ on this very idea as well as we will see 
a revelation of exactly why we can have faith. All right, so let's dive into it. So Jesus is somewhere beyond the Jordan River, we're told, at the end of John 10, hiding from the authorities because they've been trying to seize him at this point, trying to kill him, but it's just not his time, so he's still hiding. And then he receives word that Lazarus has fallen very ill, and that's when he sets the stage for what's coming. Okay, so he sees word, Lord, and so Jesus now sets the stage. Whenever you read scripture, it's important to try to find the, the flags of what's coming, the hints of what's coming. It's always there. The writers of scripture are pretty brilliant, and it's always there. So when he heard this, Jesus said, this sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory, so that God's son may be glorified through it. Okay, so that's the first hint that, oh, it's, maybe it's really not about the miracle we're about to see. Maybe it's about something more, this story, and why John has included it. Okay? So then, after hanging around for two more days, he tells the disciples, it is time to go. All right, we're going back. And of course, the disciples really aren't happy with that at all. They're like, no, let's, let's not go back. They just tried to stone you. So the disciples are struggling still with two things, what we always struggle with. One, a Messiah that dies, right? We, we want God to fix things. We want God to change the world. Have you ever noticed, you know how sometimes we spend a lot of time talking about how the disciples and they missed what the Messiah was like. Well, have you ever noticed now the vision of the second coming of Jesus is just doing exactly what they did? Isn't it really strange how the even I'm not even going to say it, just how part of Christianity has suddenly decided that, well, if he didn't come back to destroy the Romans, then he's going to come back and do it now. It's crazy how we've just bought right into what they wanted. They didn't want a Messiah that died. We don't want the sacrificial lamb to come back. And I know John says things in Revelations, but remember, John is talking about a big narrative in Revelations. Okay, so I think we should be careful in what we assume. If God died at the beginning of the world and is always the lamb slain, why is he suddenly not going to be the lamb slain? Why do we want something? Because we don't want to die either. That's what's going on here. Wait, no, you're the Messiah. You're supposed to overthrow Rome. And no, by the way, we are closest friends, and if they kill you, they're going to kill us. We're not going. Self-preservation. Ah, it affects us all, right? So they reject that idea. So Jesus explains, well, actually, guys, listen. Uh, oh, they're struggling with that. Sorry, I was supposed to put up. That's a much better visual. But anyway, so I was supposed to put that up. So they're struggling with this idea and say, well, guys, uh, Lazarus is dead. So we're going. And then he sets the stage for what the story is about. Here's another hint of what's coming, the theme, so that you may believe. That's pretty straightforward. This story is about faith, that you may believe. And what is faith? And what does it really look like? It's really fascinating. So then, right after this, okay, right after this, we have basically now the clear introduction to the theme of the story. Thomas, the one who someday gets the, the bad name of doubting Thomas. Thomas was never a doubter, ever, ever, ever. We might look at that, actually. That could be a good Palm Sunday, actually. No, actually, that's post-resurrection. That would have to be after Easter. But anyway, either way. Sorry, I'm thinking out of my head. Here we go. So Thomas gives this spectacular confession of faith. Then Thomas said to the rest of the disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. There's faith. This echoes the most ancient and most authentic confessions of all faith from Job. Though he slay me, Yet I will trust in him. There's faith. This is not about something we know. This is about something we believe that no matter what, God loves us. And no matter what, it's better. 
than any world we could imagine and anything we could ever do on our own. It's like so, what I love so much about being in ministry with Dave Bronson is, so he starts his, his morning, he starts our service this morning with this great story about things you can never see but they exist. And I'm like, yeah, that's exactly what we're talking about today. And then he plays a song. And did you notice, take off the bandages? Expose me to the air? Like, I, I love this, how this happens. And anyway, all right, so this is what faith is. Living into the love of God because we believe he does love us, and in the end he wins, life wins, love wins. Circumstances of our lives may be harsh. Death may be around the corner. But self-preservation is not redemptive. God is. And in his kingdom, his love is what matters, not our circumstances. Thomas. Faith. It's his kingdom, boys. If we're going to die, let's do it. Faith. Wow. Okay, so that's what we're about. So they go, Jesus arrives in Bethany, and Martha comes out to meet him. Now, Martha seems to be the protagonist of this story. Okay? She seems to be the protagonist. She's the one who gets the most one-on-one -on -one teaching about faith. Martha's always like that. Martha's always questioning and challenging it's at times. It's beautiful. Even when she's angry in the kitchen. She wants to know what's going on. And she gets the lessons because she argues with God. She doubts. She has questions. Let's do that. Okay? It's beautiful. See, at the beginning of the story, Martha uses faith as appeasement. Jesus is going to draw her into a more, or try to draw her into a more authentic and hopeful understanding of faith. And he's going to do it by using the haunting, beautiful story that is, is developing around them. So it begins with this telling exchange. Okay? Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now, God will give you whatever you ask. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha answered, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. So Jesus first gets Martha to reveal her theological knowledge. This is a brilliant move by Jesus. He gets her to reveal her theological knowledge, her acceptance of theological propositions that she has obviously been taught. Okay? See, listen, there is an intellectual and even emotional exercise that we can participate in that may bring us to accept certain theological positions. That's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. But that is not necessarily what faith in God is all about. Let's be clear about that. Okay? What Jesus will do here for Martha, and all of us if we will hear it, is expose the world of difference between accepting some theological propositions and faith in God. So it seems Martha learned her temple school lessons very well. See, she learned, I know he will rise again at the, in the resurrection at the last day. So she obviously was taught by Pharisees because the scribes didn't teach this. So she went to the Pharisee school of theology, which is great. So she understood that. And she also learned her lessons about Jesus really well too. I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. Sounds like us good Christians, doesn't it? We're good at that. We know what the Bible says. We know our theologies we're supposed to have. We quote scripture. We quote, our teacher, we quote our teachers. We're confident in knowing the truth. But here's the thing. Jesus is not so interested in what Martha knows. He is interested in what she believes. 
Look at what he says to her. I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live, even though he dies, and whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this, Martha? You've got your theological propositions down, Martha, but do you believe this? Do you believe me? It's fascinating. Now notice, to her credit, she is trying to believe. She's trying to trust. Okay? She's trying. Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who has come into the world. But do you notice she doesn't really answer his question, does she? She doesn't really answer what he's asking. She merely states a theological proposition that she has obviously accepted, but she still seems far from faith in him as that Christ. She is obviously struggling with faith because she can't wrap her head around how Lazarus could die if Jesus really is the Messiah. And there's the rub for most of us, right? There's the rub. Let's be honest. This is where faith goes to die. Right here. No matter how good your propositions are. Martha wants a God who makes her life wonderful and changes the world with human power. Jesus shows up and says, well, I love you, Martha, and I want you to love me back. Because in that kind of relationship, your life will be wonderful. But as far as my power goes... It doesn't look very human. It actually looks like this, Martha. Which does change the world. But until the end of your world comes, only faith can see that change. Only faith in me, as the resurrection, reveals the reality of eternal life. Jesus wants Martha, wants all of us, to trust him and not to have faith in her own theological knowledge. And this is the heart of the matter. This is what Paul is getting at in Galatians. This is what Paul's getting at throughout his entire library. This is what the Gospels are about. This is the bedrock of appeasement theology that needs to be crumbled so that our own nice little castle of faith as appeasement can crumble and we can be open to grace. We turn our faith into nothing more than trust in our acceptance of certain theological propositions, not in the God who is behind those propositions. And this is exactly why Christianity is divided. This is exactly why you get Christians hating each other. This is exactly why you get Christians yelling and screaming and getting political and every other sort of thing. See, think about it. I know everyone sitting here right now saying, David, I haven't turned my faith into that. Really? How do you feel about different opinions on faith? How do you argue? If Jesus looks like this and all he does is teach love, do we believe in him? Or do we believe in our theological knowledge about him? Listen to the Christian narrative in America today. 
Does it have anything to do with grace, mercy, and love? And dying so that the enemy might live? Or is it about just the opposite? So does it matter if we believe the right thing? Honestly? Or are we believing the right thing if we're not following Jesus Christ? This is where Martha was. Martha was, Jesus, I know. And he's like, but Martha, I'm the resurrection. You obviously don't know. This is, this is the rub of Christianity. I always used to get bothered when Jesus said to those good people, depart from me, I never knew you. But Lord, we know the scriptures. We're right about the scriptures. They're wrong. We've done things. Uh, I'm sorry. It's not about that. It's about me. And you haven't, you don't love. You don't have grace. You believe in yourself, in your own propositions. You think I'm saving you because you're right and they're wrong. No, I'm saving you because I love you and you've never accepted that. Martha, I'm the resurrection. I know that, Lord, but come on. Isn't this amazing, this story? Trusting our acceptance of certain theological propositions, I don't believe is what faith in God is really all about. Martha's own proposition is the biggest one of all. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God who is to come into the world. There has been 50 years of modern contemporary Christianity. That's how you get saved. I was part of it. I used to go to the beaches in Southern California and walk people to this point with three steps. Wow. Is that faith? If it is a one-time acceptance of a proposition as fact and not an ongoing decision to believe in the God behind that proposition, a belief that informs our daily lives, informs them, then is it really faith? Further, if we lay claim to these propositions by faith as a way of proving ourselves acceptable to God, this is not grace at all. This is appeasement. And this is often an unfortunate consequence of understanding salvation like I just said, as a very black and white, simple three-step process that seems to do solely with accepting facts. Understanding one's condition and understanding who Jesus is. But it has very little to do with real fluid, ongoing relationship. And here's the other thing about that understanding of saving faith. Is that it tends to lead to a faith that is more about accepting more and more theological propositions than it is about loving God and loving others. This is why the Christian narrative is what it is today in our country. Because they've got it right. But then they just don't live into that at all. You either believe that dying is life or you don't. 
You believe in the way of Jesus and turning the other cheek, or you don't. This is why two of the greatest witnesses to me about true faith are Karen Hicks and Rich Wagner. Karen Hicks still believes after what happened to her grandson. She believes in Jesus. It's not easy. She cries, she doubts, she screams. Rich has bad days. But that's all, that's all part of it. That, that's part of it. But at the end of the day, they're simply resting on one thing. Jesus Christ is God and he's resurrection. They're not resting on what they know about that. They haven't hung their hat. Rich wrote books about Christianity. He doesn't hold his, hang his hat that he's saved because he knows all that stuff. He hangs his hat on Jesus is the resurrection. That's it. What else is there to know? Faith. That's living into it. And I think this is why Jesus gave us the Eucharist, the communion table, the Lord's Supper. This is not a proposition. I'm, sad, I'm so sad this has been turned into a proposition, but it's not a proposition, right? The physicalness, the participation, the community of breaking bread and drinking wine. And have you ever thought about the ordinariness of Jesus picking bread and wine? In those days, bread and wine was accessible to everyone. Everyone had bread and wine. He picked the two most accessible elements and said, this is my body and blood. How beautiful is that? He could have picked anything. Nope, I have to make it that everyone has access to. And he did. Remembering Christ's death, being thankful on a constant basis, this speaks deeply, I think, of relationships. And that's where Jesus wants Martha. So, when he finally gets to the tomb, sorry, I went off there a little bit, but I want to keep going. When he finally gets to the tomb and tells people to remove the stone, here we go. Martha reveals her lack of faith, despite what she just said a few moments earlier. Remember? A few moments earlier, I believe. And then he says, remove the stone. And what does Martha say? Oh, Lord, don't do that. There's a bad odor. He's been dead for four days. And there it is. There it is. So Jesus seizes on Martha's fear in a good way, in a gentle way, in a good and gentle way. He seizes on her lack of faith. Despite all her theological knowledge, he seizes on her fear and he leads her to a stunning final lesson. Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? You see, here is the thing. It is not trusting that we get it correct. It's trusting that Jesus is God and he gets it correct. That's all we need to trust. It is trusting that from the very beginning of the world, he was not only slain for us, but he rose for us. It is trusting that he is resurrection. He is resurrection. That is what we are asked to believe but not as a theological proposition that we accept to impress God or win salvation, nor something that we claim we accept, but then go on living as though death wins and resurrection is an illusion. But to believe with our whole being, to hear his words calling out to us from the beyond the darkness of our own world come forth. So what is your death right now in your life? What is it? 
think about it. I, I don't know what's in your world, but I know the deaths in my world. I know what they are. And I just want to hear come forth. And this is how this can help us. Don't apply it. We can't obviously apply it to the same situation as Lazarus, but we all have death in our lives. What is it? Come forth. But I want to encourage us to be very careful here. And this is the part that, I'm sorry I'm a little long here, but I want to encourage us to be very careful here. With Lazarus's return from the de dead. And not allow this to be yet another brick in the wall of our appeasement theology. Okay? You see, sometimes we can read this story and think, oh man, if I only believed enough. Right? Just think of this miracle. But that is not how this story started. Remember Thomas? Remember Jesus' delay in going? Our immediate circumstances, our self-preservation, is not what faith is about. The glory of redemption is that we receive hope. True hope. And, and why I differentiate that, and we're going to get into that the next portion of Galatians, Paul talks about hope. When we say, oh, I'm getting married on August 12th, I hope it's a nice day. That's not, that's just, a, I hope it's a nice day. Or I just bought a lottery ticket, I hope I win. That's not the hope of scripture. It's not hope in good circumstances. It's hope despite circumstances, right? So the glory of redemption is that we receive hope to live within whatever our circumstances are, knowing that this is not the full story. Our circumstances are not the full story. It's truly believing that no matter what happens here, life is the final reality. See, the raising of Lazarus was a necessary sign for us. John says this as much when he starts the beginning of his book, right? Cain did his first sign. John wrote these books for signs, signs, for us. Okay, so keep that in mind. All right, so this is just another sign. And I am not sure raising Lazarus is something Jesus wanted to do. Hear me out, because I know I'm about to tread on sacred ground. But I want you to hear me out on this. Please, when you think about the larger narrative. The few people Jesus did raise from the dead had to go through it all again. They had to endure that final journey through the valley of death again. The families who were ecstatic for receiving their loved ones back had to lose them again. And the ones who had died were brought back from paradise. Remember Jesus said, today you will be with me in paradise? So think about this then. In many ways, Lazarus, the widow of Nain's son, the little girl Tabitha, these were the sacrificial lambs of the story. 
These were the ones who really participated in the Paschal mystery that we've been talking about. Because they truly gave everything up so that others might be saved. Is this maybe why Jesus wept? Sure, his weeping was a sign he loved Lazarus, certainly. But maybe not for the reasons we think. Jesus had to bring Lazarus back to this life so he could give us a sign that the resurrection he came to preach is real. But did he really want to bring Lazarus back to this? See how beautiful these stories are and haunting? Still, he chose this as a powerful teaching to bring us to authentic faith. Faith that evil has lost from the beginning, that death has been vanquished before death even happened, Christ came to reveal to us this mystery, that God loves us, and in his resurrection, we live. So no matter what kind of pain, suffering, or death we endure, it is only temporary. Life is eternal. Do we believe this? There's my question. Do we believe this? Do I believe this? Listen, I know this is hard, but this is the peace we are offered Not peace in circumstances, but peace despite circumstances. And not peace devoid of struggle and doubts and pain, but peace despite them all. Years ago, Jonathan Shipman wrote me a brilliant critique of popular Christianity. And it makes me wonder sometimes why he sort of stepped away, if maybe he just never found his answer. He wrote this. Where is the faith and the power of the resurrection? Where is the understanding that it was done from the foundation of the world and that evil had lost from the beginning? I think he was correct to ask these questions. I know so many Christians who will quote scripture, live good Christian lives, defend the great tenets of Christianity, myself included, but then disaster strikes and there is no difference in response from those who do not believe any of the same propositions. But listen, I'm not judging anyone. I know how hard it is to make the journey from faith in propositions to faith in Jesus. I know that. But this story encourages us to know that if we find it hard to live into life, to live into this spectacular mystery of redemption that says we can be in intimate relationship with God, if we find it hard to rise above the horrors of this world, and many of us have our horrors, if we remain convinced it is all useless, that there is a four-day stench that can never be cleared away, then I suggest we start forgetting about all our theological propositions that we have been trusting in and start trusting in the only thing we're trusting in, a God who loves us so much he would go to hell and back for us. And he will save us exactly because he loves us. Here is the magnificence of this whole story and final proof 
of why I think it was about what we just talked about. Does anybody know what the name Lazarus means? The one whom God helps. Lazarus didn't have faith in anything he could do or in anything he could believe or accept or argue or be correct about. He was dead. But when the resurrection himself showed up outside his tomb, Lazarus came forth, born again, made new, alive. That is faith in the power of resurrection. And as we have been discovering right along during our exploration of the gospel of grace, that's how it always is. When we are least, we are great. And when we're last, we're first. And when we are dead, we are finally alive. Thanks be to God.